think it's time for us to really go deep into that entrepreneur spirit that created the Black Wall Street. You know, the, the spirit of um, supporting and creating those legacies. I'm Nelson Murray, and this is Talking Squarely. In this series, we bring together independent business owners to have frank discussions and share their perspectives on some of the most pressing issues impacting their lives and livelihoods. Today, we continue our conversation about what it's like to be a Black business owner in America in 2020. In our last episode, Killer Mike discussed what it was like growing up in Atlanta and getting his barbershop up and running. Now we'll hear from three additional business owners on their journeys to entrepreneurship and what they've learned along the way. Pat Sands opened its doors in 1921 by a, a Jewish family, uh, uh, the Friedman family, uh, Sam Friedman. Uh, that is where the name Hot Sams comes from. That's Lauren Stovall. Her family's shop is the oldest men's clothing store in Detroit. My father started working there. His name is Tony Stovall. He started working there in 1974, I think, and then in 1975, Cliff G. Green, who is also uh, the co-owner of Hot Sam's today, they were both salesmen at the store. And then in 1994, they then bought Hot Sam's from the very store that they worked at. Our second guest, Shamar Cotton, also runs a business with a long history. Everton Jones was started by my grandmother back in 1973, a couple of years before I was born. It started off in Oakland in uh, 90th and uh, 90th and East 14th in Oakland, California. My grandmother started with uh, with all my aunts and my mom and stuff. There's nine of them at the time. So it was just at that time, it was a nice black renaissance of barbecue places in, in the Bay Area. You know, there was Flint's and there was uh, Doves came later and Casey's Barbecue was still around. But my grandmother used to work, uh, I think, with Mr. Flint in one, one time, once upon a time. And then as she got older, as he got older and she had his wife and stuff, they, they had a, uh, my grandmother and the wife, I guess, they, they didn't get along. So she went out and started her own business to support her own, her, uh, her nine kids. And uh, I am basically a living legacy of that from my grandmother, not having passed a third grade education, not having much for her background. But she started this business in 1973 in Oakland which we end up spawning out to having about 10 restaurants at the time. We've been in the Oakland Coliseum. We've been in the Shoreline Amphitheater. We've been in a lot of places around the Bay Area. I'm just in awe here <laughs> to hear the two stories here of these, like I'll let Lauren say, the legacy preservers. I love that. I mean, ah, it's amazing. I mean, this is an honor to be in you all's present. Um, I love that. I love it. It's just really just gives me the chills. That's Yolanda Owens, our third guest. While her business hasn't been around for quite as long as Lauren and Shamar's, it still is rooted in family history. You know, when I started eRefresh in 2003, my grandmother, she really didn't start it, but I, I like to say that she's the real founder of eRefresh. We called her a home remedy queen. And she used to make all of her products from the kitchen and from the garden. And so I, I was inspired by that, but I didn't realize that I was inspired by that until later on in my life. I created Ewe Fresh and I was working Ewe and e and corporate at the same time. And then I, I um, left full time and I started my business. 
and I um, started making my own products. And then I opened up a spa because there was no spas that were toxin free. Everything was chemicals. So I opened up a farm to skin spa. I have my own farm and I go to my farm. I partner with local farms here and I have my farm and I handpick all the fruits and vegetables. I juice them, I mix them and I make skincare recipes. Thank you for sharing that uh, that origin story with us, Yolanda. Let's let's fast forward to the present day. 2020 has been a wild year with the pandemic and with racial justice issues, period. But what were some of the challenges just being a Black business owner that existed long before 2020, but that you're still facing day to day today? What's happening really in, in Detroit uh, and downtown Detroit specifically, which is where our store is located and has always been located, um, is this notion of gentrification. Oh, we know, we know it very well out here. Yes, very well. Yeah, so I mean, when you, when you think about that, that is something that has been plaguing uh, Black businesses, Black communities for quite some time. I remember there was this community uh, in Detroit called Black Bottom. Now, keep in mind, Detroit is 80% Black. Um, now, Black Bottom was a community in Detroit, not far, actually, from where our store is, downtown Detroit. So it was literally kind of around the corner from where we are right now. And it was a neighborhood that really was, like, vibrant with jazz music and, like, some nightclubs and things like that. But it was poverty-stricken. And because most of the residents there were kind of factory workers. And so it was demolished in the 60s. And it was clear that it was kind of demo demolished out of a way to make room for this like new freeway intersection. And it was promised that when they tore it down and, and brought this new freeway intersection, that they were to build new public housing for that community. Well, that never happened. Well, what happened was there were, there were new development, but it was not affordable and it was not made accessible for Black people. And so still today, it's, it's very difficult. When, you, when I go back to gentrification, what do we see? Higher rents, mortgages, property taxes, et cetera. And so we are kind of in the midst of that. We got new landlords uh, in the process of this revitalization. So we had one thing going on, then we get new landlords, new development is happening. So what does that mean? Everything is going higher. And, but while there's still incentives though for new businesses to come in, but never mind, we've been here since 21, 1921. We're really welcoming you, new landlords, to the city of Detroit. But you raise our rent. And, and I get all of it. And let me tell you what, what, is, very, uh, what is very key. And I've, I've shared this before. It is about relationships. And I think when big businesses and small businesses start working together, it is considered then a partnership because you realize that you need me just as much as I need you. I think that is something that has been an awakening uh, since this new kind of, uh, I, I call it a racial pandemic because we went from COVID-19 then to a, a racial pandemic. Um, but I think that that has been prevalent is, again, that need that we um that is resonating that we all need one another. Amen. I totally agree. For me, I experienced that firsthand um, being in downtown Atlanta where I was for 13 years. And we got a new landlord that literally, you can see it blatantly, was was really putting people out. The Black-owned businesses were, were had to move out because they were finding loopholes in the lease, loopholes in the system, 
things were happening so blatantly and it was, and it was legal, it was legal, but it wasn't fair. You know, it was legal and black business, my, a lot of the business, it was all, it was like 10 of us. And now it's down to three because they could not survive through all of the different um, scenarios that they were implementing that we, you know, that, that were legal, but it was just like, really? We, we, for real, you're going to change the lease. You're going to charge me for this. You're going to now say this. I mean, we had, and I'm going to give you an example. They, um, the new landlord that came in, uh, everybody was paying their rent, however they were paying it. And their accounting was holding everybody's uh, checks for like five and six months. And um, at one time, and then, and then they would take them within two or three months and deposit. And, you know, if we're a small business like me, who's only been around that long, that hurts. Yeah. And Shamar, what about you? You know, uh, coming from coming from where my grandmother started to where my mother and everybody, my aunts was doing, our biggest thing has always been financing. The people have supported us a lot in the Bay Area, Black, White, Asian, Latino. There we got all kind of people that come and support us. But once, if we ever try to grow, you know, ever try to upgrade and stuff like that, especially our Berkeley locations, when you can do so much. Finances is kind of tight. And then being in the Bay Area, you know, everything out there is one of the most expensive places in the world to be at right now. So so if you're trying to upgrade and stuff like that, it's, it's going to cost you a pretty penny on top of that. You're trying to keep your workers working. So that's one of, That's been one of our biggest problems, finances. And then with this going on right now, you know, it kind of helped. I mean, it's, it's a blessing in disguise. It's Exactly. Like, like I said, it's a it's a nightmare that I would never thought would happen, but it's a wonderful nightmare. As far as people opening their eyes, finances, banks actually willing to help us out now. They're not considering restaurants. This this uh, what they call it. since we was always one of the highest risk things to do was a restaurant. It's like they don't people companies banks don't like to lend out money to restaurants because it's considered a very very risky thing, even though we've been in business for over 40 years, you know, that should say something, but it really meant nothing to the banks. And if we, if I go in there and ask for financing and with my mother being the owner and stuff like that. So our biggest thing was uh, finances. I think people are, are seeing that now. And so I think that that is so important. I think again, an awakening seems to be happening around the notion of just the racial disparities and how difficult it is for black people uh, to to get capital, to get access to money. I know my father and his business partner had a very trying time. That's why I said that's a whole nother story. Talk about buying a business. Never mind that you work there. <laughs> you were a salesman there. They made it extremely difficult for my father and his business partner to to buy the business. Nevertheless, because I told you black people, we are resilient, we persevere. They were able to do it. But the process had so many challenges. I, I will say after COVID, um, it seems like there's this real newfound uh, support for small business owners now, you know, and people, yeah, and love and people are really wanting to reach and support small. They care about small business now. I feel like that's, there's more caring around that. Before I didn't really, I saw it, but I didn't feel it the way that I feel it now. Um, when each of you hear someone saying, what can I do to support black owned businesses in my community, wherever, the, wherever these people are, what do you say to them? What are answers to that question that you think 
uh, folks might not have thought about yet? The one thing I say is, of course, spend your money there, but also spend your time and your effort and spread the word. It's not just about spending your dollars, which it, I mean, you got to spend dollars to support a business so they keep going. But taking that extra step of telling telling a friend that tells a friend that tells a friend because word of mouth is the best advertising that you can have. Yes, I, I, I totally agree. I think of the Black Wall Street and, and that, that entrepreneur love, like you say, going to that heart chakra and really supporting us on, like Shamar said, so many different ways, not just money, but just just really putting out great vibrations, wishing us well, you know, wanting to see us win you know, really doing things that really support us in so many ways, really thinking about being intentional about how do I support this black business? How, what can I do to make them take them, take their business to the next level? And it could be of various things that it is, but I think bringing back that old entrepreneur spirit is what I feel that we're moving into that direction of. I'm hearing this new buzzword now, um, that I never really used before, but it has been widely used now in terms of allies, right? I think it's so important, um, you know, that allies and everyone really understand the, I go back to the history, the history of this country uh, in terms of how they view Black people. Because what I've come to understand and I want others to understand is sometimes there are implicit biases. And, you know, if we don't recognize our implicit biases, we will start seeing that they show up explicitly. What do you understand about the culture of Black people? What do you understand about the history of Black people in this country and how it just stems from before you're having a Black friend? But what is has been historically done in this country to Black people, how have Black people been viewed in this country? If we go back to history, we were literally viewed as three-fifths of a person, not even a whole person. So if you don't look at someone as a whole person, how do you think that you would treat them? And so I think it's so important that we do a heart check during this time. And, and I'm seeing a lot of people do that. I have so many friends, Black and white, and of all different races, doing heart checks now. And, and we're having hard conversations, uncomfortable conversations that we've never had before. But this has all came about during this time. These are the implicit biases. Until you see someone as a whole human being, you may not treat them as a whole human being. Speaking of community, you are all sort of inherently part of your own community as entrepreneurs. What sort of advice would you give to other Black entrepreneurs who are considering starting their own businesses today? What should they be looking for in terms of opportunities? And um, what can they be doing in terms of lessons to learn from folks like yourself who have already started their own businesses? You got to find that niche that you really love and you're passionate about. Mine has always been restaurants and uh, hotels and restaurants, besides sports. And then once I realized I wanted to do more hotels and restaurants, I put, I put it all into my family business. I will say the same for whoever it is out there. Like we're three different businesses on this call. Everybody found their niche and their passion. Once you find that niche and their passion, you go all in and go all out. Don't worry about failing. And plus you need to fail because if you don't fail, you won't succeed. I love that. I, I agree. You know what? Because what I think and I see a lot, especially in Detroit, 
um, that entrepreneurship can be kind of trendy and, and everyone thinks that that's what they want to do. I want to be my own boss. I want to, you know, because it sounds really cool. I guess it sounds glamorous, but I think a lot of people don't, don't um, attribute it to grit, um, that there's a lot of grit. Um, there's a lot of things that people don't see. Everyone is not built for the entrepreneurial uh, lane. Everyone is not a, is built for uh, the, the corporate lane. I agree with both of them. <laughs> Uh, passion and purposeful and serviceful. I think those are the key elements. You, you've got to really understand why you're doing it. And you, first of all, you really need to understand who you are and what your purpose is on life here to do, because everybody has a different platform on how they're, how they're going to convey their purpose. Anybody can open a business is that's nothing. That's easy. That's the easy part, you know? <laughs> But it's, it's maintaining, and it's like you said, and it's the service piece and the purposeful field that you have to implement along the way. Is that happening? And how do you maintain that and keep that going? That's the part that a lot of people don't understand when they just say they want to be their own boss. There's more to it than that. So you really got to understand why you're doing it. Each of you have, have emphasized that you run businesses in very different parts of the country. And Yolanda, you've talked about issues with gentrification. And Shamar, you talked about difficulty accessing things like um, funds through financial institutions. I, I want to, as we sort of come to a close here, I want to ask you all a, a two-part question. What are some things that cities and big companies, including companies like Square that build tools for independent business owners, what are some things that cities and big companies should be doing and thinking about with regard to empowering Black entrepreneurs like yourself? What should be different? What should be better or made easier? I would say I like that question because I was just thinking about the city of Berkeley. Most people know about us in the city of Berkeley from the coach Herman Edwards to Marshawn Lynch to a lot of people that went to Cal Berkeley to Cal Smith. The city should reach out to Black businesses like my mother, like myself, and kind of embrace us that we've been there for over 40 years in the little tiny city of Berkeley and put us out there a little more. I'll just say that the city of Berkeley needs to like reach out to us, talk to us, get to know us more with some of them. Some of them do know us or kind of want to meet them, but, you know, and push us out there, you know, let them know that we're part of the city as well. Well, do, do, do you think that that's something that um, that cities outside of, of Berkeley also have an opportunity to do is to actually get to know the black or other business owners who are people of color? I think they should. I mean, because, I mean, that helps. It helps you. It helps us. It helps the city and it gives the city a culture. Yolanda, what comes to, to mind for you? What are some things that cities and big companies like Square can do to empower black entrepreneurs? I think that... Um... Very similar to what Shamar said. I mean, really reach out and and really expose us, um, get us help provide us, get us out there. But one of the things I always said was that, you know, reach out. Um, I think just recently, I think it was a Black Girls Code, um, a, a large corporation. Who was that? Black, they, somebody um, took them and they, they um, like, just pretty much took them in their arms, this corporation, and provided money for them for the next like five or six years for them to sustain. You know, I, I think big things like that <laughs> could be great because they're now like they, they're, they're set. 
you know, they're good. So the, the company just not only gave them a few thousand dollars, they actually gave them enough money to help them to sustain for the, I think she said for the next six years, they will be, you know, they will be able to survive comfortably and probably pass that too. You know, I agree with uh, what has been said by Shamar and Yolanda. I want to see more um, large businesses and small businesses being considered partners. Uh, I would love to see every large corporation have more Black faces, more Black voices um, at the table in decision-making seats. Um, I would I would love to see the diversity um, in corporations. I think sometimes these things can seem like just for the moment. And I just would love to see the sustainability of this synergy that seems to be happening around the nation, that it not just be for a moment, but that it, it really be a movement and a wave that stays and sustains. Uh, I love what I'm seeing, you know, that is happening in terms of collaboration and partnership with small businesses and large businesses, and again, with Blacks and with whites. I love seeing the cooperation, the working together, and I want to imagine an America without racism. And, and I want to believe that, that that will happen. And so that is my prayer, is that this, this moment that we're living in, that it becomes a movement. A special thanks to Shamar, Yolanda, and Lauren for their time and thoughtful discussion. Everett & Jones Barbecue has locations in Berkeley and Oakland, California. To learn more about the restaurant and check out their menu, visit www.eandjbbq.com. To book an appointment at Yolanda's Spa, Iwi Fresh, and shop for her natural products, visit www.iwifresh.com. And Hot Sam's Detroit can be found on the corner of Monroe and Randolph Street in downtown Detroit. To shop online, visit hotsamsdetroit.com. You've been listening to Talking Squarely, a Square production. This episode was produced by Mallory Russell, Cindy Lewis, Duchesne Ramsey, Evan Grohl, John Scarpinato, and Travis Gonzalez. Our music was composed by Jordan Wallace, with sound recording by Sorrentino Media and Jamie Cohen. I'm Nelson Murray. Thanks for listening. expressed in Talking Squarely are those of our guests and do not reflect the official policy or position of Square.